I watched Spinal Tap with my 16-year-old daughter, and I kind of didn't know how it was going to fly with her. And really, I think it was like the bizarre gardening accident line, the death of the first drummer, that she started laughing. And by the time we got to like Big Bottom, she was just squealing, like almost (laughs) shrieking with laughter. She was losing it. It obviously still holds up. Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is the man at the helm of such beloved films as Mean Girls, Freaky Friday, and Spiderwick Chronicles, director Mark Waters. We're going to talk to Mark about the time he got parenting advice from Twisted Sisters' Dee Snyder, why Matthew McConaughey calls everyone by their last name, and how tuna fish sandwiches on white toast help Jim Carrey overcome his funk during the filming of Mr. Popper's Penguins. So, without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show! It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too yeah, much that's... perspective now. Alex, there are so many moving parts during a film production that you have to expect some major complications along the way, and more importantly, not let them destroy your project. There's just too much at stake. Yeah, I'd say that's true for any business. You can set up a number of plans. You'll never be able to anticipate everything that can go wrong. So you just have to be ready to pivot when curveballs come your way. That's for damn sure. I mean, I have one Great example of that. I wrote and directed this short film called Welcome to the Jungle Gym. I think you can find it on Vimeo if you guys are interested. And that starred Axl Rose, right? Hey, 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 keep it down. I used that song without his permission. (laughs) I don't want to get Axl Rose on my ass again. You know, besides, there's no way I could have used that song legally. My entire budget for the five-minute film was 400 bucks. And the only reason that was even feasible was because my actor friends stepped up and worked for free. And I'm talking Michaela Watkins from SNL, Larry Joe Campbell from According to Jim, Keegan-Michael Key, Eddie Jemison, Laura Keitlinger, and Mary Jo Smith. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, the shoot went off without a hitch. That is until we looked at the footage a few days later and found that most of what we shot with one of our two cameras was missing. I mean, gone. Oh, no. Now, you have to understand that we shot digitally, which meant that everything was filmed onto an SD card, which is like a memory stick. These SD cards have a finite amount of storage, so when they're full, you have to upload what you shot onto a computer Mm -hmm. and then erase so that you have room to shoot more. This is such an important function. We entrusted it to one guy, and that was his one and only task so he could focus. That's all he had to do. Take the SD card, upload the footage onto a laptop, erase it, then hand it back to the camera operator, upload, erase, return. Uh, I'm getting the feeling he wasn't up to the task. No, he somehow missed uploading the footage. So the camera guy inadvertently recorded over everything. Oh, no. Fortunately, I had a great editor, Becky Nelson, and Becky was able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. In fact, what we ended up having turned out so good, it won several awards, including being an official selection at the Austin Film Festival. Wow. And even better, 
I showed it to our guest today, director Mark Waters, who I knew as a fellow parent at my daughter's preschool, and he liked it so much, he wanted to turn it into a network show and brought the project into his agency, CAA. Wow. Good thing you didn't give up on the project. Hey, I had 400 simoleons invested into it. (laughs) Well, and I know you. You are not going to kiss 400 simoleons goodbye. (laughs) But hey, I mean, I think this whole thing is certainly a testament to your persistence and determination. And that's something that Mark Waters has demonstrated over many years in show business. I mean, Mark's greatest achievements all came after he was briefly sent to movie jail, as he calls it, for directing a film that bombed back in 2001. Well, as the most quoted person on our show once said, and I'm talking about Winston Churchill, when going through hell keep going. (laughs) As we've shown in other episodes, we love Churchill. Yes. Winston was the Axl Rose of the Yalta Conference. (laughs) Indeed. And always good for great effing perspective. So now let's get to our chat with director Mark Waters. But first, listeners, when's the last time you encouraged a friend to check out your favorite podcast, Too Much Effing Perspective? What do you mean? Never. Come on, folks. You're all we have. Tell a friend about TMEP and spread some love. We'll be right back with Mark Waters after a short break. And now a man who saved Billy Bob Thornton from freezing to death in a Santa costume, film director Mark Waters. Hey, Mark, great to reconnect with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Um, I want to start off by talking about your own personal Spinal Tap Smell the Glove moment. The great film you directed back in 2004, Mean Girls, was mired in controversy over the seemingly innocuous term hot buttered muffins. Can you explain? Um, Buddy and Muffin is actually a classic Tina Fey thing, which is that, you know, she worked in network broadcast television so long that she's always just been learning, like, how can you get away with saying dirty shit without actually saying dirty stuff? If you watch SNL, there's so many euphemisms for genitalia, you know, my lady business. One of the lines in the sand was Amber D'Alessio masturbated with a frozen hot dog. And then it was like, okay, you can't have that. It's a problem that's a frozen hot dog. It means it's like an erect penis. And we're like, okay, so we changed it to masturbated with a hot dog. And we're like, yeah, you can't even do that. That's not good. And, and we're like, how about made out with a frozen hot dog? And they're like, it's still, this. it's erect penis. You can't do it. <laughs> so it became like made out with a hot dog, which is decidedly unfunny, you know? And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> I was just listening to Ricky Gervais talking about using the word minge on the Golden Globes. And they were like, well, you can't say minge because it implies female genitalia. Like what we have is Sabby say instead, Judy Dench's vagina. And they're like, yeah, that's okay. I'm like, no, that's worse. (laughs) By trying to make it soften, you're making it way worse. And so the big thing that we threw down with the MPA was over the line at the assembly where the, the girl says, you know, I can't help it if I have a heavy flow in a wide set vagina. And that was something where they really were gunning for that line. And Tina kind of wrote a very feminist letter to the MPA saying, you're shaming this girl's body. And meanwhile, the anchorman's coming out with guys with erect penises at the same time. So we kind of like played the sexism card and they backed off and said, okay, mm. well, you can have wide set vagina. You get one. <laughs> and we skated in under the wire of PG-13. Yeah, but in those situations, doesn't it say more about the person who's offended than the person doing the offending? Yeah. I used to be in advertising, and I had the Wisconsin Bell account. And I wrote a radio commercial that was set in a shoe store, and the guy said, I'm looking for my wife. She's about as tall as a parking meter 
in pumps. Mm. And Wisconsin Bell goes, no, you can't use the word pumps. That sounds like breasts. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. She's in a shoe store and she's talking about pumps. How does that sound like breasts? Were you molested by a moccasin at some point <laughs> yeah, in your I life, ma'am? Where, where are you getting that from, right? Interesting. That is on your brain, people. <laughs> you went through a lot of stuff with Mean Girls trying to keep it PG-13, didn't you? Because the book is kind of graphic. Well, the book's not terribly graphic. It's just kind of like calls it as it is. I always joke that everybody's life is an X-rated movie. You have sex. You use the restroom. We just don't show all those parts. Queen Bee's book is just life. But admittedly, the first draft of the screenplay... It was called Homeschooled, and it was completely R-rated, as in not only just risque jokes, but a lot of cussing. Like Regina George dropping F-bombs like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas is kind of great. I mean, she's just basically, are you fucking kidding me? You think you're fucking pretty? But, you know, this is going to be for a younger audience. And it was interesting because Rachel McAdams, who's the sweetest person ever, she's Canadian, she always kind of struggle with being as mean as Regina needed to be. And I found sometimes during rehearsals, I would break out the old F-bomb version of the script and say, let's rehearse with the cussing. And we do that. And then we go into it. Okay, now let's remove the fucks and go in and do the scene. And she would get the teeth of it then and be like right into being kind of badass. But was it Lindsay Lohan originally pegged to play that part? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. When I read the screenplay, I immediately said, I think Lindsay's perfect for Regina. And actually sent her the script and she said, oh my God, I'm dying to play Regina. This is the best. And then we went about looking for a Katie and it was hard to find somebody good to play Katie. And I saw one actress who was great, but I thought she was a little old for the part and just didn't seem like an innocent. And I remember telling her, I think you're a movie star. I've never met you before, but you're incredible, but you're just not right for this. And then after Freaky Friday came out and it did really good business, I got sat down by John Goldwyn and Sherry Lansing and they gave me the come to Jesus speech and said, look, Lindsay Lohan's going to play the lead. You know, she's playing Katie. <laughs> we have to embrace that now. And then when we went about casting for Regina and I brought back in Rachel McAdams, who was the, the actress who seemed a little bit too old and composed and mature, was suddenly perfect to play Regina. Huh. And when she read with Lindsay, Lindsay was a little bit scared of her, you know, because <laughs> she had that thing of being a little bit older, a little bit more experienced and sure of herself. Lindsay was a little intimidated in the test read and I was like, okay, this is exactly the energy we want. Rachel McAdams was 24 when she was on Mean Girls, right? And that's pretty common because yeah. underage actors legally have to attend school during shoots and that can hold up production. Mm. How do you keep it real when you have adults playing the roles of teens? You look at Greece, you know, like Greece has made like Soccer Channing was in her 30s, you know, and, and right. so is John Travolta. And I think the cast of Beverly Hills 90210, most of them have been out of high school for five to 10 years as well. It's kind of like whatever plays, you know, and really the only person who was truly under 18 on Mean Girls was Lindsay. Having her be in every scene and be the lead of the movie and also be on a minor's day where you have to school her for three hours, you have to give her all these breaks, yet she's the person who has to be on camera all the time. It's definitely makes you pull your hair out. You should have tried to develop a high school TV show starring Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin to get around that, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that. You did two movies back to back. 
with Lindsay. She had this period of just these films that are epic. I have teenage daughters. They love them nearly 20 years on. Were there any signs back then of her coming off the rails? You know, it's kind of hard to do the forensics on that. I remember the first day of Mean Girls, Lindsay didn't come to set, you know, and we're like, what happened? It's like, she has a rash on her face and she's not going to come. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I literally had to leave the set, drive back to the hotel where the producers and the executives were in the lobby kind of wringing their hands going, what are we going to do? I'm like, well, I'm going to go up there. And I went up to a room and her assistant, who was her guardian at age 21, wow. was in the room. And I said, move. And I, and I went and <laughs> like got Lindsay out of bed, opened the curtains. I said, go use the restroom. You're coming to set with me. And she said, but my face is coming. This is rash. It's splotchy. I'm like, I know. I may not shoot you, but you still have to come to work, right. you know, and, and we literally dragged her to work, made her sit in her trailer, made her do her schooling. And then I shot the whole day in this weird phantom way where I shot every other person's coverage over three scenes in this one location. Mm. And so it was, we're shooting like over a photo double, just close ups. It was like this fandom thing where the editor was looking at the footage going, what the hell is this? <laughs> Lindsay's not here, you know, but... <laughs> And Lindsay was temperamental at times. And one of her things was she really wanted to always look pretty, even when for the character it was important to her not necessarily look pretty. Hmm. Like in Mean Girls, you had to save her becoming glam because she's supposed to be just the nice side girl, basically, at the beginning, while Regina and the others are, are all the thing. And I remember she said, I really want to curl my hair in the scene. I was like, you can't curl your hair in the scene because <laughs> Rachel is wearing this, and you're going to curl your hair in this scene when you've taken over and become the queen bee. And she's like, okay, I understand. So we shot half the scene that morning. We come back from lunch, and she has curled her hair and put on more makeup and, and eyelashes. <laughs> And I kind of quietly kind of leaned her. I was like, Lindsay, you can't do this. We already shot at the scene. It's it's continuity. And then she burst into tears, ran off the set. Oh, no. And then I heard later, like, she blames you for making her cry. <laughs> and so it's going to take two hours to get her back. You know, and so we're like, and meanwhile, you know, she's a minor. So we did get her back and we did shoot. But, you know, putting us through our paces, for sure. I mean, the thing that's comical with her is that she was 17, and yet she was very rigorous of, like, I'm not staying a minute after my 10 hours is run. You better hurry up and get this done. You know, and I'm like, ah, oh, we got to rush, we got to get done. And then, then she'd leave, and then I remember, like, that night going and shooting second unit plates and seeing her out at clubs and being like, Lindsay, she's like, hey, Waters, you know, and she's out partying <laughs> in downtown Toronto. We're like, all right, well, this is what we're going to do. But she still got to work for years. Yeah. Until she didn't. She's naturally very talented and charismatic. She had something about her that was really compelling to watch and had a great voice and was really somebody who took direction extremely well. Like whatever I asked her to do, she would usually stick it the moment I asked her to do it. I don't think she kind of was in love with the craft of acting. Hmm. I think she liked being successful. She liked being famous. She liked the money that came with it and she liked the attention more than necessarily being in love with becoming a great actor. And obviously her life went through many twists and turns. I think she's married now and living in Dubai and hopefully happy. But you know, there's other people you do meet where you just feel like, yeah, they're all about the work. You can see that for them, whether or not they make money or whether or not they have a claim, it's more about, are they going to do great work or not? And I can't say that that was my sense of Lindsay. 
But fame is tough. Yeah. Few adults handle it well, let alone a teen. No, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, like people would comment on her behavior around the time that it was happening. And I said, hey, look, when I was 20, I was fucking crazy. Right. But I didn't have paparazzi waiting outside my dorm room and show it to the world. <laughs> and document it, yeah. Yeah. Mark, almost every one of our guests is one or two degrees separation from Spinal Tap. One of your films, Freaky Friday, starred Christopher Guest's wife, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. The day I met Jamie, we met in her kitchen and Chris walked in. And like most great comedians, he is a completely low-key, chill guy, you know? <laughs> most people you know who are great at comedy aren't people who come in telling jokes. They're almost like, you know, scientists of comedy. I was just listening to Bob Odenkirk's book, and he said he rarely laughs at an improv show. The real pros sit there in their clinical like, oh, yeah, that was really funny. Oh, that was good. But they don't actually laugh. And Chris is like that, too. He's a very relaxed, cool guy. Like This is Spinal Tap, Christopher Guest's movies are mostly improvised, and of course, yours are scripted. Would you ever try your hand at that style of filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I always say, let's do the script first, because we know what the script is. And then when things veer off of it, I'm actually okay with that. Let's get the text on film, because that's something I can count on. But uh, as far as doing something generated from improv, I would need to kind of learn more about improv. I know that Dina, my wife, who's an actor, she actually kind of late in her career decided, okay, I'm going to take all the UCB improv courses, learned all the basics of improv. And I think I would need to actually sit through and actually take the class myself as painful as that might be for everyone around me, including myself, before I could actually feel like I could direct something like that. Because it seems like it is a very different world than how I've operated in the past. Because I am a tried and true control freak, for sure. Well, what do you think is your favorite scene in This Is Spinal Tap? Uh, you know, it's funny. I got to say, it was fun to revisit it. While it was in theaters, I probably saw it about 10 times. So it's a movie that I know in my dating life, I would bring women to see Spinal Tap. And if they didn't get it, <laughs> that was it. There was definitely not a second date. <laughs> and I remember one night actually bringing some foreign exchange students a guy from Ethiopia, a woman from Lithuania. I remember, like, they didn't laugh once. They didn't believe that it wasn't real. Because <laughs> that's the thing about it, is that it is played so committed and so low-key that not once does it reveal its hand where something where you're pushing for a joke or anything, which is amazing to watch. Revisiting it was also fun because I watched it with my 16-year-old daughter. Nice. And I kind of didn't know how it was going to fly with her. And really, I think it was like the bizarre gardening accident line, the death of the first drummer, that she started laughing. And by the time we got to like Big Bottom, she was just squealing, like str almost <laughs> shrieking with laughter. She was losing it. I enjoyed it at another level, seeing how much she was digging it. You know, So it obviously still holds up. Oh, well, I love your answer. 
we've never considered the spinal tap as sort of a filter for dating or a relationship. <laughs> you know, does someone smoke? Mm. Do they use proper English? Do they eat sushi? Do they like beer? Yeah. But do they laugh at spinal tap? Do they get spinal tap? I have to say this, that we were in the UK and we visited Stonehenge. And of course I had Dina shoot a video and I said, and oh, how they danced. And then I kind of did the <laughs> druid dance, you know, in forced perspective as if I was around it with it behind me. So Spinal Tap is something that's deep in the, the water's ether. But I would say that as far as my favorite scene, the experience of Big Bottom, the fact that it was a song I used to know the lyrics by heart and could sing anytime, and then seeing my daughter experience it, I think Big Bottom is still my favorite, just like this, versus just the purity of that song. And the other thing that tying into relating to the movie business, the fine line between stupid and clever, a great line, but also just realizing like so many of the missteps in my career are me going like, oh yeah, I thought we knew what we were doing and it turned out we were completely fucking stupid and didn't, you know, and, and then I was weirdly affected by the emotional scenes of Nigel kind of coming back to the band, him coming in and saying, you know, sex farms a hit in Japan. And <laughs> and then David invites him back on stage. And it's just like, I was literally getting a little teary eyed and I'm going like, oh my God, <laughs> it's working on an emotional level as well now because I'm older and have more perspective, you know? So that was pretty righteous. That was pretty cool. Well, it's certainly a love story, right? It's that's the kind of the undercurrent. It's the love story between the boyhood yeah. friends yeah. and anyone who's been in a band before knows that even if you don't like them, you develop this relationship, this bond that never goes away. I still am friends with band members I never liked being in a band with 30 <laughs> years later because we shared this war experience. Right. Do you ever feel like that on a set? Like when you're really hunkered down with your cast or your crew or both? Do you have that kind of bond? The movie business is strange in the sense that Unlike a band, you kind of just do like this one project together usually, and then you move on to something else. But you definitely either butt heads or bond intensively, you know. But it is true. Like people I've butted heads with before, you see them and you'll still hug each other because we survived that shit. And then also with a little bit of perspective, everybody I've butted heads with, I appreciate it when... It was somebody who just cared about making it good like I did. There's There are times where people are just being stupid or lazy, which I can't abide, but I'm a perfectionist. When I come upon other perfectionists and we just don't agree, but then we get through it, that's okay. It's okay for both of us be striving for something great and be passionate about getting it. Sometimes you don't get along, but that's okay. Alan, I'm looking at you, baby. Just <laughs> yeah. on the nose. <laughs> Speaking of collaborating, we recently had songwriter Dan Wilson on the podcast, and he was talking about working with Carol King. And once they were working on a song together, and Dan didn't really like one of her ideas. And, you know, Carol's a legend, and Dan didn't know how she'd respond to his critique. But instead of getting mad or saying, hey, I wrote Respect, dude. I wrote Pleasant Valley Sunday. I wrote You've Got a Friend. She goes, okay, well, what about this idea? Or what about this idea? Or what about this idea? Yeah. You had the same kind of relationship with Tina Fey when you were working on Mean Girls, right? Well, Tina's, there's a reason why she is who she is. She would say, oh, God, this joke is feeling stale to me. And I'd be like, oh, really? I still like it. And she said, here, try these instead. You know, but, but sometimes when you're on set and it's not working... I would go to her and she would literally just like sit there and go like and produce like five new punchlines. <laughs> that is so great. I remember the scene 
on the bed where Lindsay's talking to Amanda Zyfried. The whole scene ended up being shit that Tina made up right there on the day, sitting 20 feet away at the monitor. Like, I can put my whole fist in my mouth. You want to see? Just like, <laughs> who comes up with that? That was where her mind took her. And God bless her for it. You know, she's got that thing going on. It's very cool. That's an incredible work ethic. And I've said this in business as well. It's like, if you're going to cite a problem, offer a solution. It sounds like mm -hmm. in Tina's case, she comes up with five solutions. So that's a pretty nice place to be. Yeah, I would say that it's somewhere between the two, actually, because, for instance, when I'm getting studio notes, I often really dislike their suggestion of what to change something to. And you end up saying, I hate hearing that note. You eventually learn the note behind the note and say like, oh yeah, I disagree with their note, but they're not wrong for having it. It's just, we don't need to listen to their suggestion. <laughs> Let's just figure out a more interesting way to approach it. I too have a thing when I'm working with somebody, when I'm working with writers, I never just say, I don't like it. I usually will say, it's not working for me. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. It's a safe room. You guys try whatever you want to try, but let's do something different. Hey, listeners, decide for yourself if there's a reason why Alex and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we're going to play one of our songs. So stick around. In 2002, you directed a VH1 movie called Warning, Parental Advisory, about Tipper Gore's efforts to put warning labels on records deemed to be profane or inappropriate for kids. Yeah. Twisted Sisters' Dee Snyder was a part of that real-life saga, and you ended up getting him to play himself in the film. That feels right for Spinal Tap moments. How'd that come about? It was a really good screenplay, and it was kind of after I'd made my second movie, which was a complete bomb, and I was in movie jail, and my agent was very surprised when I said, yeah, I want to do it. This looks cool. And got Jason Priestley to play the lobbyist who was kind of fighting against them. Then Tipper Gore was Mariel Hemingway. And I got Griffin Dunn to play Frank Zappa. But trying to find somebody to play D. Snyder was next to impossible. And you have all these people coming in to play young D. Snyder. And it was like, it was just so bad. And then <laughs> eventually, you know, I said, can we just reach out to D. Snyder and see if he's interested in this project? And then we send the script and D. Snyder's like, yeah, I'll play myself. You know, <laughs> and, you know and, and we kind of didn't really worry about the age makeup, kind of made sure he had the same hair because at the time I think his hair was like, shorter and dark. He got him his wig for his hair again. But basically, you know, he played himself, but he was inescapably D. Snyder. He was amazing. Plus, like, the coolest guy ever. So down to earth and laid back. And my wife was pregnant at the time, and I remember him giving me parenting advice that was really <laughs> astute as, you know, somebody who had never even had a kid. And I, was, and I was like, oh, my God, D. Snyder's like the best dad ever. <laughs> Mariel is so charming way more than tipper you really see her side of things which you normally wouldn't do but the most fun part of it was that we did thing where at the end of the movie we break the fourth wall and every cast member does we're not going to take it fun meryl hemingway is like writhing on top of a conference table and the whole thing was worth it just to be able to do that closing credit sequence which was totally fun so let's just go back here for a second uh parenting advice from d snyder 
you know, when he, it was around the time, I think, of Columbine, and he says, you know what? Your kids shouldn't have a lock on their door to their room. You got to know what's in their closet. And if they have a problem with it, they can get older and move out. But while they're living with you, you know what's in their room, you know, and you can go in there anytime, you know, when they're at school and then take a look. And you can't parent by being laissez-faire about shit. You got to stick your nose in it sometimes. And I was like, yeah, that makes good sense to me. But he was a very solid dude, a really good guy. Oh, that's cool. So- I remember seeing the actual footage of D. Snyder testifying in front of Congress. And he walked in, he had his long curly blonde mane, and he was wearing like a muscle shirt kind of thing, looking like he would on stage. And I think that they were just blown away. On this list is our song, We're Not Gonna Take It, upon which has been stowed a V rating indicating violent lyrical content. You'll note from the lyrics before you that there is absolutely no violence of any type, either sung about or implied anywhere in the song. He was probably more articulate than half the people that were on the congressional panel. He absolutely is. And uh, it's a little side note is that after having kids, I would make music playlists to play in the car. And I found myself going, oh, shit, I'm literally going to download the clean version of this song with the lyrics like muted or, or changed because I'm playing it for a one-year-old and a five-year-old in the back. It's only when my daughters start to get older. Different and, perspective. Yeah, like when my, my when my daughters are like watching like American Horror Story and Mr. Robot, I'm like, I guess I can go with the explicit versions now. They're like, they can handle it. Well, I just have to say I'm friends with Sarah Gore. I've only met Tipper and Al once, but Sarah's wonderful. So I just got to stick up for the Gores. Al's a prince, you know, talk about a guy who had an election stolen from him. He actually did have an election stolen from him, but he didn't whine about it. So we think of Spinal Tap moments as things that were maybe painful in the present, but are hysterical in retrospect. Can you give us some of your top stories? The story of my career is a story of all kinds of calamities that you do maybe try to put them out of your mind, but there's like just so many shit shows. Even in just my last movie, we had this thing where we were to do a rain sequence and we had several rain towers built up all around this property, put up big flags to block the sun. Then the city said, yeah, we're not going to let you plug into the water line. Oh, no. And we're like, we have to shoot this rain sequence. That's the only day we can do it. And, and it literally ended up being the special effects guy getting a garden hose and, another, <laughs> and taking his finger over it and spraying it in the air and kind of hitting the windows. And we we're like, okay, I guess this is what the rain's going to be. That's what we're going to live with. Wow. Another one that comes to mind of like shit show production moments is this movie Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past. And we're shooting this big night sequence where the ghost of the future, who's this beautiful a Ukrainian model who kind of floats in on a rig. We are like, okay, this is great. And my DP had lit this using the light balloons in the sky. Meanwhile, we're all ready to shoot. And suddenly the balloon gets caught in the wind and literally is on fire. Oh, so this no. big fire, which we put out. And my DP is this really good natured guy, Darren Okada. And he's like, okay, I have another solution. We're going to work it out. It's fine. And so he put up 
big old kind of, you know, Klieg lights on cranes. And they didn't look as pretty, but we got it up in the air. And then the wind blew those over and they hit the ground. And then the generator caught fire, second fire of the night. Then we didn't have any power. And so then we have some grip holding a battery operated Kino flow and the steady cam operator kind of walking through the forest because <laughs> that's all we could shoot. It's like, yeah, this is what our, our dramatic sequence ends up being because this is what we got. But it's kind of an interesting thing about the business though, is you end up just doing something, even if it's not what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I worked in theater before I did movies. And in theater, on opening night, a bunch of people are going to show up and it may not be at all what I'd planned or what I was hoping for, but we're going to put on a show right. and then people are going to watch it. I adopt the same thing when I'm on set that day is like, this is the grand plan of what we thought we were going to do for cinematic genius. And now we're just walking around with a battery operated light. Yeah, Mark, that reminds me of being on the road with bands too. I mean, with concert tours, consistency and routine are key to smooth execution. And then there are those times that you have to improvise. Like when I was tour manager for PJ Harvey and also for the Bodines, we found out that the band's equipment was not going to make it to the show on time. So you either cancel or you find a plan B or a plan C to make it happen. And yeah. there's a reason for the expression, the show must go on. Canceling a show opens up a whole bunch of new heartburn. Yeah. We had this thing where we basically paid for an entire block near Times Square and we paid all the shopkeepers and was we were doing this elaborate sequence in a pilot called Fashion Victim. And then we showed up that day and they just said, oh, yeah, the mayor decided he's, he's taking that block to do something. But you can use this little 18 by 18 by 12 patch here, but you can't have any equipment you set down and you can have as many people. Wow. And we still had to shoot the day. So I was like, okay, you know, and I got a second steady cam guy to come in and we basically stayed on our feet and rotated around in this tiny little circle, <laughs> all the actors of us, you know, and uh, nobody who sees it knows that we had something much better planned, but they don't need to know. It is what it is. Mark, you're a master of casting. I mean, you kind of discovered Rachel McAdams and Amanda Seyfried during Mean Girls. Any casting decisions in your career that went wrong or didn't work out as you planned? John Green's first novel was called Looking for Alaska. And we had the rights to the book in a, just to produce. And Josh Schwartz was going to direct it ended up falling apart because we had a change in studio leadership and they no longer liked Josh Schwartz. And then we kind of set it up again. We had this great young director and we were in Detroit 10 days out from shooting, going around, looking at the locations. And we get the call from the studio they're shutting the movie down. Oh, you know? oh, <laughs> and then and so we're like on this bus with all the crew who are happily like getting ready to shoot this movie. And hey, let's go look at this location. But it was really painful. The thing that was painful about it was that the reason we didn't make the movie was because the actress we wanted to play the lead, the head of the studio at the time, didn't think this actress had any star quality, any charisma, and wasn't pretty enough. And the actress's name is Anya Taylor-Joy. Oh. Yeah, right. She only won a Golden Globe for the Queen's Gambit. <laughs> no star power there. Yeah, thanks for that. Meanwhile, <laughs> he no longer has a job Wrong. and he's yeah. uh, eating the world. Yikes. 
I remember in another casting thing that was interesting was I was making Freaky Friday up until about a week before shooting with Annette Benning. And then Annette dropped off the project with like literally sets built. You know, it was kind of these things where we thought it was going to be like, okay, I guess we have to send anybody home. But to the credit of Disney, which is run by Nina Jacobson, she just said, no, we're still making it. And so I was like, okay, let's go after Julianne Moore now or Renee Russo. And Nina, who's a very bright woman, said, now we're not going for anybody fancy again. And that was fancy and it didn't work out. We need to cast Jamie Lee. And and at the time, Jamie Lee hadn't been working a lot, but she was on the cover of Moore magazine doing that thing where she showed the behind the curtain of glam and like, this is what my glam squad does to make me look like this. And every woman in America loved her. Then when I went and actually met her and got to meet Chris briefly at the time, and then she and Lindsay started to rehearse together, I was like, oh shit. And that Benning saved my movie. That was really cool. The movie became what it was because of that thing that Jamie and Lindsay had. That was a happy accident. Mark, being a film director kind of reminds me of the role that Spinal Tap's manager, Ian Faith, had to play. One part leader, one part parent, one part psychotherapist, one part politician, one part servant. Yeah. It just goes on and on. How do you think about it? It's one of my big lessons of film directing that I often tell people is that you just have to give the crew direction. And they don't actually care whether you're right or not, but they can't handle indecisiveness. You equated it with being a coach, right? That's true. Your players want to see you taking charge. They want to believe you know what you're doing, that you have a plan, and that you're 100% confident in your plans, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, continuing with the sports analogy, remember when Laker coach Luke Walton was forced out of his job because his star player, LeBron James, wanted him gone? Right. You've worked with many of the biggest stars in Hollywood, McConaughey, Jim Carrey, Billy Bob Thornton, Reese Witherspoon. How do you manage these relationships knowing that even though you're the coach, these players have so much more leverage than you? You know, I think just by being conscious of it and also being aware that this is the power dynamic and not trying to push it beyond that. Yeah, And I find that actors still want to get approbation from their director. But I do find that a bigger star, they don't want to upheave their performance. You know, like I can have a younger actor come in and they're completely wrong and what their choices are, and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to bend them and pull them completely over here. And the good news with like those people you're mentioning, they don't become big stars because they make bad choices. But sometimes you want to give them a note. And I'm always making it their idea, saying, you know, we were doing the over the shoulder, you kind of playing with this thing. It might be fun to just kind of like tap that vein a little bit, you know, and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even if it's something they didn't do, but you back like, you know, I saw in the master shot that you were like about to kind of pick a fight with her there. Might be kind of funny if we went more in that direction. Like, oh, yeah. But you're never saying, I'm going to change what you did. What you did was not good. Yeah, that's true of all actors. You've got to be a conscious, aware human being to live like that. You know, but in the sports thing, I should say that Matthew started me on this thing, which is that he only wanted to refer to people by their last names. Hmm. And he only wanted to be called McConaughey <laughs> because he was an athlete. He's used to like his football coach could say, McConaughey, get over here, you know? And so then I started adopting it and realizing, oh, it works really well because I've had shows where I've had like five marks on the show or, you know, six Pauls. <laughs> last names works great. Can we just get into Jim Carrey for a moment? Because he's one of a kind and you worked with him on Mr. Popper's Penguins. 
Yeah. He has 100 amps of current trying to get through a 10-amp circuit. <laughs> and the world just doesn't move fast enough for him. He's so quick. He thinks at a different level that people don't get. But, man, the first part of that show was difficult. Like We had a lot of trouble getting along. And part of it was food issues and like Nigel Tufnell complaining about the catering. He was insisting on having a no-carb diet when we started shooting. He was really obsessed with like wanting to fit in these great suits that we'd made for him. And Ann Roth was a costume designer, a legend. He didn't want to gain any weight. He wanted to look really thin, but he was eating no carbs. It makes you crazy to eat no carbs, especially when you have to work long hours and stuff. But anyway, the the thing we discovered was, so I started to sit with him and watch the takes at lunch. And I eat the same thing at lunch every day on every movie set, which is I have a tuna fish sandwich on white toast. And I've had it for years. And so I'm eating my tuna fish sandwich. He's looking at God, that looks good. I'm like, here, we have some, have one. You know, and then he's like, no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm not having carbs. Like, just take half of it. And he ate it. He's like, God, this is incredible. You know, and the next day I had the caterer make two sandwiches. And he's like, oh, really? I couldn't eat. I just had that, I had that yesterday. But then he eats some of the sandwich. And, he, and, and then a number of other things started to go well, including us starting to kind of get used to each other and him realizing I, too, was aspiring to make a great movie. And then the second two-thirds of the shoot, he's kind of trusting that, like, he's nailing it, and I'm saying he's nailing it, and it's working well. Nice. And he's also, like, relaxed and having some carbs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Making him a happier man. Mark, thanks for sharing so many Spinal Tap moments that go along with making movies. Who knew? (laughs) Really fun stories. Yeah. How can our listeners keep up on your latest projects? I'm not as much of a social media person, but I am on Instagram, Mark underscore S underscore Waters. I just made a movie called Harvest Moon. Paul Bettany wrote the script. I'll be posting there. Once again, Mark, thanks for being on the show. It was a blast reconnecting. Alex, Mark Waters' career is incredible, but I don't think I realized until this interview how much shit he's had to go through to get to where he is today. Mm -hmm. It's a testament to the drive and persistence you need to have a successful career in the movie business. I, of course, have displayed the persistence without the whole success part. Yeah. And the best example of that is what I've gone through with my script, Walking Time Bomb. The history of Walking Time Bomb is like if the Titanic had just kept hitting icebergs one after another for another thousand miles. Tell us a story. Okay, I wrote Walking Time Bomb in about 2013, and the immediate reaction to it from my reps was, this is way too fucking dark. What are you thinking? Iceberg number one. (laughs) And at that time, I'd already been eight years into the rejection business, and I just said, fuck this, I'm going to quit for a while and start a vegan cheese company. So my wife and I started something called Nary Dairy, and we made our product at the Cordon Bleu Chef Center in Pasadena. And the Chef Center was run by a guy named Larry Bresler. About a year into making our product, maybe two years, uh, Larry was murdered along with his wife by his nephew. Wow. It was incredibly shocking. But what was interesting about it was that the reaction of the people in the kitchen to Larry's murder was very similar to the reaction of the characters in my movie to the massacre that is the central moment in the film. Huh. So I thought, maybe I've actually tapped into the true human experience here. And at the same time this happened, 
My then friend Keegan-Michael Key was finishing up his stint at Key and Peele and I gave him the screenplay to read and he loved it and he wanted to do it. And with Keegan attached, it wasn't really hard to find people who wanted to make the movie. And soon we had a couple producers involved, including, believe it or not, Elon Musk's sister. Really? Yes, true. Wow. And then we had investors and it looked like we were making a movie. Then I got the contracts. Iceberg number two. So I bailed, which turned out to be a great move because literally the next day, Elizabeth Banks called and said she wanted to produce the movie and she already had a deal with Netflix. So we were all set up and it was in better shape than ever. Keegan bailed for a more lucrative movie. Iceberg number three. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to stop with the iceberg thing. I think you get the idea. Yeah. And then about two months later, Elizabeth Banks decided she was going to direct Charlie's Angels, and it was dead again. And I really didn't think it was ever going to get done until a year or so later when this other director, Stacey Title, who I'd been introduced to, read the script, wanted to do it, attached Bob Odenkirk, Jason Alexander, Courtney B. Vance, Jesse Plemons, and we were back in business. Then the worst thing imaginable happened. Stacy was diagnosed with ALS and eventually she passed away. And I started to think that this project was doomed. So I gave up. Meanwhile, my wife saw on Instagram an ad for something called the Midnight Oil Collective out of Yale, and they were looking for disruptive projects to produce. And I entered Walking Time Bomb and I got in and things looked hunky-dory again, and none of it would have happened if I would have given up. That story reminds me of that blues line, if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all. And they might be giants. If it wasn't for disappointments, I'd have no appointments. (laughs) Speaking for myself and on behalf of our three listeners of Too Much Effing Perspective, who includes my mom, (laughs) we're excited for the wind in your sails with this Yale program. Thank you. And, uh, Just remember us, little people, when you make it to the top of the mountain. What do you get when mean girls go head over heels or Mr. Popper's penguins with ghosts of girlfriends past on a freaky Friday, only to become a cheerleader death squad at the Vampire Academy? Warning, parental advisory, it's Mark Waters. Thanks to Mark for proving yet again that some of the world's most coveted professions are like Petri dishes for Spinal Tap Moments. Careful what you wish for, listeners. And speaking of movies, there's only one I could think of that Mark didn't direct. It's called This Is Spinal Tap. Check it out on iTunes or Amazon Prime. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our mailing list on our website. That's tmepshow.com. And follow our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller, and on behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. For today's tune, I'm picking a particularly cinematic cut of mine, Angeline, about a suicide-packed, 
Unfulfilled, off my solo album, Wuthering Depths. The song brings a whole new meaning to the term, Go Jump in the Lake. You'll get it when you hear it. So see you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. You smiled through your tears. There was no Dream.